Welcome to the Cardboard Crash Course Podcast, everybody. My name is Ethan, and I'm joined by Turtle Dude, a member of the board game community who's been real active. Would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, my name is Patrick. Some of you probably encountered me before. Um, I've been in several board game communities for a number of years now. Um, been really heavy into the hobby since about 2008. Played, you know, card games growing up as a kid, as well as standard board games in the past so uh, i've got a number of experience in that area and uh, more than anything i think i've probably most known for introducing new characters to games so i oftentimes like for instance in one game that i'm in i I run a, a beginner's tournament league every month i try to make it friendly for new players to to join in a game so that makes it easier to approach and that's probably what i'm more known for than anything else within the community Okay, wonderful. Yeah, getting p- new people into games is kind of what we're all about here. I sort of like to say board games for dummies by dummies. I would like to talk today with Patrick about what board game expansions are in terms of adding themselves to what you already have on the tabletop and whether the different types of them are worth it. So today we're going to be running through a few different types of board game expansions, seeing maybe how they compare and how worth it they are. And we'll see maybe some of them fit into what we already have on our game shelf. I'm sitting right by mine. I'm not far from mine myself. So I've got a few different types of board games explained by the Knights Around a Table YouTube channel. He's got a series called Board Game 101. And in this episode, um, I think he just titled it Board Game Expansion, simply enough, if you want to check that out. The link is, of course, in the show notes. If you follow along with that, he it's a few minute episode about five different types of expansions. We've got player extensions, modular grab bags, optional standalone, more of the same, and component upgrades. We're going to touch on each one of these here, and I think you've got a few things to say about board game expansions yourself. So if you want to, you can go ahead and introduce us with player extension types. These are kind of the most simple way of getting into board game expansions, because if you think about something like Catan, it just adds more players or more simple abilities you can do. Yeah, I think Catan is probably one of the better examples of that. Party games especially tend to do this a lot. Uh, you got things like code names, right, which kind of come in with the ability to infinitely expand. But you got things like Monstrosity, where you buy this second core, and all of a sudden now this eight-player game goes to ten, or ten-player game goes to twelve. And so I find party games tend to do that a lot, and that's always good. But then when you've got those games too, like you said, like Catan and things like that, that one you get to that five or six player, oftentimes like that's a pretty niche market really when you think about it because it's like you usually have your board gaming group of you know most people four or five players right and you get that game you absolutely love and then suddenly oh well dang we don't have enough spots for this one player so we can't play this great game that i want to introduce to everybody i think that's where those really shine but it's not for everybody Right. It, it's one of those where right, only, yeah. you really only need it if you're dealing with larger settings. Mm-hmm. I definitely think it's the most sort of linear of all of these. Like you said, Catan definitely is the best example of this. Wingspan actually just had a new expansion, um, Wingspan Asia, which they're toting as not only an optional standalone game, but also uh, a player extension. So they extend it downwards and upwards down to one or two players, as well as uh, six or seven players. There can also be a way of sort of adding a solitaire mode or a two-player mode to an otherwise party game or such. That's actually a really good example. We just picked up the Asian expansion over the holidays, so that's that's actually a really good example of it. And there's lots in that, right? Even if you think about some of the the smaller scale things like that that make an, an expansion great, where it can branch into multiple directions, Honestly, and I'm probably getting ahead in the conversation here, but oh yeah, is really what makes a good good expansion worth picking up. Yeah, yeah, I think we'll sort of curate what we find to be a good expansion when we're going through all of these different types. They kind of are broken up into these five types, and I don't want to make it seem like it's 
mutually exclusive. It's definitely a Venn diagram. You can see a combination of all of these different types in one expansion box. And I think a lot of the time that makes up a good expansion, like you say. So by the end of this, I think we'll have a pretty clear idea of what we want out of an expansion that really adds a good amount of value to a game. Right. It's broad strokes. Yeah, I think Scythe, uh, the Rise of Fenris expansion is a good way to go into the second of these five, the modular grab bags. And that's pretty much the best example I can think of this type. Modular grab bags would be something that introduces a lot of different concepts. And this is a lot of the times the most popular type of expansion, but it basically just adds more rules, a little bit more complexity here or there, and you can take different parts of it and add it into your game as you wish. So take something like the Ticket to Ride maps. They're introducing sort of a new modular board that you can use. They don't really have a specific direction they're going in. They don't want you to play a certain exact way. They're just giving you more of these modules that you can add and subtract from your games as you like. A good example also is Everdell. Have you ever played Everdell? I have. Everdell is a fantastic example of that. And there's so many different factions and the way they play, it just, it, it really does expand. And as you expand out from the core set there to the expansions, it, it opens up a whole new avenue. So yeah, that's a perfect example. You can sort of mix and match them. And I think it's what, four or five boxes at this point? I believe so, yes. Okay. Along those lines. I, I thought it was four, but you may be right. It may be five there. Yeah, I think two came out at once. Maybe it is four and a, and a fifth small one, but you can pick and choose exactly what you like. Right. And I think of games like, say, Carcassonne, which on the core game alone, it has this base mechanic that, that doesn't change, right? You lay your tile, you lay your worker, and then you score points whenever right. a task is complete. But then when you add in things like under the big top, where you're introducing new pieces that score differently, and now you begin to yes. think about how you want to assemble things. So that's a really good example of it as well. And I, I think many of these games are designed to extend the life of the game, right? They're meant to, to breathe fresh life into a game that maybe you've already explored. Maybe it's not a bad game, but you and your group or your family or whatever have sat down and you've played it a hundred times and you feel like there's nothing really new to, to learn. And then suddenly this new expansion comes in and you're finding yourself bringing it back to the table again. And I think that's really what these kind of expansions do best is to breathe fresh life into a game that otherwise might have grown a little bit stale. Yeah, and what's fun about Carcassonne in particular and expansions like that, it's not only is it on the face of it a new mechanic, but it's also you can mix and match them with other types and maybe only add two different sets of Carcassonne, including the big top, and it feels completely different. You can almost get a year's worth of replayability off of a new Carcassonne expansion coming out. Yeah, exactly. I think there's other games that do that really well as well, such as, say, Railroad Inc. Each one of those, you know, you'll come with two different sets of uh, expansion dice that you can uh, play with, mix and match. You can draft if you get multiple sets. So, yeah, that's another way that that works. And I think that that really helps the players because if a game forces me to rethink how I approach it, I always find that fascinating. For instance, you mentioned Ticket to Ride maps. And yeah. typically when my wife and I play the, the broader maps, she has a very set strategy of playing very quick, very small routes, where I tend to be more of a card hoarder. Well, when we switch to, say, the smaller city maps like London or New York, it flips the script on us. And those quick claim routes uh, are really how you win that, that game more, most effectively. And so suddenly I find myself never winning a match in the small city map <laughs> because it forces me to reconsider my play style, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a wonderful thing when a game can introduce an expansion that breathes such newness into it that you've got to really rethink how you're approaching it. And it makes you want to play it again because you realize, oh, if I just did this or oh, if I hadn't put that worker there, maybe I could have won. And that's just the wonderful thing about games in general. So when you can do that, again, it's almost like getting to play the game for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. I I think of an experience just like that for me would be something like 
Clank. I don't know if you've ever played mm-hmm. Clank before. Okay, it's a deck building game for anybody who hasn't heard of it. But you know, um, Patrick, from playing it, that there's a lot of different boards that you can get for the game. And being sort of a dungeon crawler, it's nice to have these different types of boards that you can be traveling throughout, but you can actually mix the decks together to make different experiences. And having this modular sort of system with a lot of these expansions in Clank has breathed new life into my playgroup. Even after maybe a couple times through the base game, it was getting sort of stale. I have never found it to be stale after uh, my buddy got me a couple of these boards and we started mixing, you know, the mummy's curse and sunken treasure and making a whole new experience out of it. Absolutely. And deck builders are, are almost the perfect example of that, right? Look at legendary yeah. and all the expansions you have for it that are all outside of a handful, you know, alien being the most prominent, probably that kind of plays by itself, but all pretty much all the other ones are interchangeable. You can, mix and match or or dominion is obviously the og of it all a heart of crown and and on and on it goes but deck builders are that perfect engine right to say Mm -hmm. hey here's this expansion that's got all these different modulars and you don't have to use them all in one game but you can and the more you add in and switch up the more the flavor of the the game itself changes one last one that i'd kind of like to just bring up because it was my obsession for so long uh, it's Eldritch Horror has this very unique way of going about the modular system. Eldritch Horror is a game that sort of precursed the Arkham Horror LCG. It was a massive board that you would uh, and your investigators would play on. If you play the original Arkham Horror, it's basically just a massive version of that. They had a way of going about it where every expansion would not only have a module that would just be permanently adding more cards to the game, but which sort of touches on our more of the same section, but it would also have a separate board that you would have the option of placing next to your main board and almost doubling or tripling the size of where you could go. So not only was it a permanent addition to the game, but also you had this this specific flavor that would only come up so often if cards maybe told you to bring out the board or such. Yeah, that's actually a really, really good example of it. That whole uh, Arkham Files line of products, I think, all fall into that roughly. But yeah, yeah. I think Elder Tor probably does it better than than the rest in many ways. Yeah, I had played Arkham Horror a couple of times. I never found that same feeling that Eldritch Horror got, but I bet that's just my own personal opinion. I think it feels a little more powerful to be defending the world than just a single town, but I think that's just me. The Eldritch Horror, I feel, is better than Arkham Horror, but I would sooner play the LCG over the board game. So, you know, there's there's balances there, but I, I don't think you're wrong for, for that opinion there. This is probably a good time to to move on to our third type, the optional standalone. So I think of game like Codenames Duet. It has just basically a rule book as well as a bunch of cards that can be mixed into the main codenames. The Duet is just a kind of campaign expansion to it. And you can play Codenames Duet straight out of the box. But if you mix them together and get a more larger variety of cards throughout it, then both of them are helped by that card games oftentimes will introduce okay here's um for instance heart of crown which is a deck building game i mentioned earlier is by japanime games mm-hmm. not a lot of people play that here in the states that i know of but it, it it on its own is a pretty expansive deck builder there's various modulars you mix and match there's a large amount of variety within the core set but then they have a second core set that's i think called summer garden and it it acts as a core set all on its own but they can be mixed and matched as well as some of the smaller modular sets that each introduce uh, new mechanics. So that's, I think, another example where where that might mix in there. Uh, yeah. And there's a number of those, right, that generally have standalone properties, but are also designed to enhance the original as well. Right. I think it's almost the most consumer-friendly type where you can have any entry point. And he makes a point in uh, his YouTube channel that 
expansions largely are a way of getting returning players to buy more of the same. Instead of trying to introduce them to a new idea, it's easier for somebody who already likes something to get something else of that type. So being an optional standalone, it kind of allows you multiple different entry points into something. And if the expansion is, let's say, half or a quarter the price of the original base game, getting them into it and then sort of going, hey, maybe check out the original. You can mix it all together and have a big game with it. Then that's what I think makes the most consumer-friendly expansion to me. I agree. I think uh, Villainous is a good example of that, right? So you have... Yes, <laughs> I was going to bring set. up Villainous. <laughs> you have your core set, and, and that comes with five uh, different villains in it. But yeah. then you can get you know each of these other expansions that come with two or three other extra villains and then they mix and match and well i wonder how the queen of hearts would face off against scar and suddenly you know it gets all mixed up and next thing you know you have these really dynamic plays that that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise seen in a back and forth if you just stuck with the core yet at the same time if i all i did was buy the expansion with scar well i still have enough here that i could play the game by itself without having to have the core set yeah i don't even think it says anywhere on the villainous box that it is an expansion i think it just says here's a game you can mix it with Mm -hmm. any number of other of these size boxes or the original really big box i don't even think it has any indication i wish that more of the lcgs were along these lines if you had something like let's say marvel champions or the harkham horror lcg and instead of having a core box with all of these tiny little modules and and ways of mixing into the base game, instead you had multiple different core boxes along all of these different types, whether it be X-Men or Fantastic Four, or if you like Arkham Horror, maybe a, a Signs of Haster. If you sort of took that LCG business model and turned it into this optional standalone type, I want to say it would be very successful. I know it'd be a little bit more components-wise right off the bat if you're having to introduce, you know, tokens or the like in each one of these, but having multiple entry points and then saying, why don't you go out and, and buy all of these different types, different themes, that might make it easier. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm a big fan of the LCG model as a whole, but that is definitely one of its weaknesses. You, you think like, back when it was still of course uh being printed but android netrunner every time they would have a championship they would print the winning deck in a pack that you could buy and then that's your entry point into the game so you say oh well i know this deck is good because it won this championship and if if i buy that i can learn what the game is like and if i want to i can expand out but that doesn't really do enough to get the player fully invested in the same way with you know marvel champions where you might have a a hero pack okay that's great and the idea is oh i see somebody playing my friends are playing i'll buy this hero pack sit down and join them and that's wonderful but it doesn't really allow them to invest in the game at at a scale you kind of got to jump straight into the large core set and i agree with you that i think if they would just include you know, once even every other year, another core set to give a jumping off point instead of a premium expansion. Right. A good example of this, though, it's a, a card battler versus um, some of the more co-op version of LCGs is versus system. It's essentially an LCG by another name. It's an expandable card game. But what makes their model probably a little bit better, in my opinion, is like an LCG, it has a pack a month that it drops. And about every three to four months, one of those packs will be what they call a battles box. And this battles box is essentially the start of the next wave. You buy it and you have everything you need to play the game in that box. You have a core rule set, you have your tokens, you have enough cards to build at least two decks. Mm -hmm. And it's just a little bit more, about uh, twice as much as a standard pack. But that's really not all that expensive as an entry point because it's only around $30 usually. So you can buy into this game and have what you need. And usually they're pretty good to play the game at almost a competitive level 
maybe not, you know, getting in the top cut, but you're, you can go to a store and enter a tournament and reasonably expect to be able to win a, a game or two at least out of just that, that one set. And then that'll let you expand from there. And I think that's a wonderful way to, to modify that and kind of wish LCGs would pick up on that a little bit more. That sounds like the complete opposite of something like a trading card game where you absolutely will never have everything you need, especially in a game like Magic the Gathering where things are continuously getting more and more expensive. And unless you start printing out proxies, which I know a lot of people do with a living card game and something like you were you know, saying with Netrunner, you do get the opportunity to kind of have every tool. And even though it is a versus system, you won't miss out on too much. I know it's you still have to purchase the items, but it's not like a hundred thousand cards are out there and you can, you know, you only have a wallet so big. Agreed. It's and it's the reason why I love LCGs so much, because you know, I grew up playing card games, L5R was a game I absolutely love to play, Legend of the Five Rings, for those who don't know what that stands for, um, was a card game by AEG and Wizards, I think, had it for a little while. I think that, matter of fact, I think it was started by Wizards, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but, you know, it was part of that big card game boom in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Fantasy Flight picks it up and, and start launches it again for about a five-year run from about 2017. And the difference being that you know you buy a ccg and like you said you you got all these extra cards you don't need it, it over time it gets very expensive because you're getting a lot of duplicates you, you know you have two or three five thousand card boxes and you're only using you know a couple hundred of them right <laughs> whereas an lcg yeah there's there feels like there's this big barrier to entry for a lot of new players i've noticed where they say, oh, but there's so much content, I'll never get caught up. But the truth of the matter is, it's a little easier, I think, to get caught up in an LCG. And mm-hmm. overall, you're actually spending less money for more content. And I totally appreciate that. Now, it ruins the chance to go get rares. And you know, if you pull that really awesome yes. card in a booster pack. So there is a trade-off. But I think from a customer base, it's far more customer-friendly if it's not as new player friendly as I would like to see. And I think 2PCG model from Upper Deck really does make that balance happen. And I would love to see more of that in card games as a whole, because that's kind of where I cut my teeth when it comes to uh, organized play and, and getting involved with communities. And it can be so hard to enter into something like a TCG where, you know, it's just there is optional standalone packs for them. You get, you know, something like magic, you get these dual boxes or commander precons or whatever, but it just it's not the same. These cards will be broken apart. You're not going to keep your deck together like you would. You know, I've purchased Marvel Champions packs in the past and some of the precons are completely still together because being a cooperative game and being a collectible card game a living card game rather is a way of you know sort of protecting the cards for me mm-hmm. they they'll stay in my collection and although they're not you know sitting there making money I don't think I really ever have to upgrade. I don't have to spend thousands of dollars in order to enjoy myself and compare myself to other people playing the game. I honestly think that you and I could have an entire episode about trading card games versus living card games if we tried. Oh, I don't think it would be that difficult to try. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably it's probably best saved for for a couple episodes for now. Yeah. We'll probably cut it off now and move on to the fourth type of expansion this is more of the same a good example of this would be something like parks have you ever played parks patrick i have uh and then you got of course all those spinoffs too with trails and and so on yeah yes so parks has an expansion called wildlife and what it does is the base game introduces these wildlife tokens, and they're basically wild. This wildlife expansion basically extends upon that in a way that gives you more options, gives you more ways of scoring points, because the game is all about resource management and victory points, and gives you more ways of using these wildlife tokens. But in nowhere does it add 
completely new rules like their expansion Nightfall does. Nightfall and Wildlife are kind of two different types where Nightfall adds a lot more rules and can be seen as more of a modular grab bag. Wildlife just kind of extends upon the main core game and that can extend into things like Eldritch Horror or Wingspan that we've already talked about where something like the European expansion for Wingspan is just literally more of the same. Yeah, and there's a, I think that's probably the most common, really, form of an expansion. Some things, for instance, like, well, Flux, you go from one set to the next, and it's just kind of a reskin of what you had before. And those that can be combined are able to be combined because all they're doing is more than anything introducing new skins. There's, of course, exceptions to that. But a lot of times, I think that's probably a vast majority of expansions out there. It's just introducing maybe a new flavor of the same basic mechanic. Yeah. This is the easiest expansion to sell to somebody, I think. Even more than the optional standalone, where that might give them different entry points to get into the base mechanics of the game. This is the easiest way to say, if you liked that, this is just more of the same. You don't have to learn anything else. And if you do, it's a very small. And sort of just give them more options. I think the absolute best expansion, in my opinion, for this type is the Forsaken Lore expansion for Eldritch Horror. Forsaken Lore doesn't have any extra boards, doesn't have any extra tokens like the rest of the Eldritch Horror expansions does. It is quite literally just a deck of cards in every type of card that the base game has and just gives it more options and gives it more storytelling purposes. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of miniatures games kind of fall into this category, like dungeon crawlers and things like that. They're really just giving you new areas to explore, but the game core of the game is essentially the exact same, right? And every now and then you get things like Crisis Protocol or Warhammer, where obviously the new set might introduce new mechanics, but as a whole, you're still got your 40,000 points, you're still trying to build your army out of it, and the basic mechanics don't change. Of course, that's a little bit different because it, it's more of an interact, but the general idea is there, right? Where you're essentially taking, hey, here's a core set, and then now I'm going to introduce this basically exact thing you got, but it's going to be slightly different. It's going to have a different flavor. It's going to have a new room or something along those lines where it's like, right. okay, it's different enough that I'm experiencing something new, but it's old familiar and I don't have to stray too far from home. Yeah, right. You, you don't have to sell somebody this on a completely new concept. It's sort of similar to selling a fully new game with the same skin. If you sold somebody Parks and then went, here's Trails, it's a different kind of game with the same art and everything that's very similar to selling them something that adds a whole bunch of new mechanics because one way or another they're gonna have to learn something new and although this is a pretty easy way of getting people to buy an expansion it's also i want to say a lot of the time it's the least creative it's a simple clean way of getting people to buy more and if you our business owner, really, that's that's what you're looking for. Yeah, and I think that this is kind of one of those areas that's got two different sides to, to the coin, right? Where in one sense, yeah, it's just, this is good for business. I can take Monopoly and throw 30,000 different themes to it and call it a different game, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, to a degree, not nothing bad. But at the same time, it almost almost feels like I'm being robbed at times, right? And so I don't blame them for doing it, but it does sometimes feel like a bit of a cash grab. And, you know, sometimes I know that going in, right? I, I recognize that Star Wars themed chess doesn't play any different than regular chess, but I'm going to buy it because I love Star Wars, right? So there's nothing wrong with it per se, but I think where it tends to get a little bit out of hand is because a lot of new players into the hobby, like you said, this is the most appealing way to get them to, to purchase your product. I don't really have to think about it much. I know I like this, so I buy that. Not realizing that maybe if I bought this expansion, I'd actually have more to do. And this one simply just 
is going to eventually, once I find these other ones, sit on my shelf. It's almost a trap for new people into the hobby, I think, in some cases. Not exclusively, of course. There's some that are good for that, and so I don't want to make it sound like it's all negative. But I do think that there's a, a darker side there we have to acknowledge. I want to say that a lot of Kickstarter expansions are like this. The Kickstarter is a whole concept that we could go into a different conversation with. If you're selling something that's more of the same for a premium price, it has to be something that is worth adding. Let's compare it to video game DLC. Actually, all of these can kind of be compared to video game DLC. The, this is the, you know, we're adding a whole bunch of new items, uh, new quests for you to go do. There's nothing really huge, but, you know, it's going to be $50. And you want to compare it to, well, how much fun have I gotten out of the base game or out of the original game in the terms of video games and go, is it worth spending almost the same price just to add to that? Or would it be worth taking that money and reinvesting it into a different experience? You know, is it worth buying the European expansion for Wingspan, where it just adds more of the same? Or do you want to take that, I don't know, what is it, $25, $30 you can find it, and invest it into something I've never tried? I personally have fallen into this trap way too often, where I'll buy a game, and before it's even arrived at my door, or before I even unwrap it, if I bought it at the LGS, I'm already you know, searching up if this game has expansions. That's an issue, of course, and that's on me, but it sort of trained me to think, I need everything for this game. And that's just completely not true. That's something that I think a lot of board game hobbyists have to get out of the mindset, including myself. That money might be just simply worth investing to get a different variety of gameplay and possibly different player counts in different games. Yeah, and, and I think you brought up a good point with a comparison to DLC. I've actually got that in, in my own notes. Is I mean, let's face it, board games and tabletop gaming in general kind of is the precursor to DLCs and not just video games in general, but DLCs specifically in many ways, right? I think Magic mm -hmm. the Gathering was loot boxes before it ever happened. You got booster packs, you hope to get something good, and most of the time you, you got a common. Right. And it's the same idea, right? And, and so using your analogy and kind of expanding on a little bit, if I play, uh, say, if I'm playing a fighting game and I buy a fighter pack, I expect to get four or maybe five new fighters out of that pack. They should each have their own way of playing and should expand it. Ideally, they'd have their own story, you know, campaign or, and so on and so forth. And usually there's a balance patch with that and all, all that. But then if I buy a pack and I get a fighter and then I get five different skins, it's kind of feels ripped off because I, I paid the, the price to get another basically quarter of a game worth. And instead, all I really got is a, a new coat of paint. And for some people, that's fine. And I think they enjoy that. But I think it, you need to be aware that that's what you're getting. And the the collectors in all of us, because I mean, I think as humans as a whole, we like to we like to be a smog about things and collect it all and hoard it together, right? You know, we, we want to get our trove of look I at know all that these too. great pogs yeah. I've got. Yeah. And, and I this is especially true for uh, those of us in this space and just nerd communities as a whole, if I can put it that way. It's easy for us to sit there and say, ooh, look at the shiny. And I think retailers know this right mm -hmm. uh studios know this and so if you go into it knowing that hey i know i'm never going to play this very often or at all and i'm just buying it to look good then fine buy it and know that and that's great show it off to your friends you know look at how awesome i got this rare thing but for most of us i think and i think for most of consumers period you want to know you're getting something that's worth that repeated experience mm -hmm. you know and for instance you know your crystal chess sets is a good example of that right where it's just hey i'm just buying really nice materials to play a game that i already know and love even though i'll probably rarely play with it uh i think yeah. Shiro came out with an expansion like that not long ago where it was a leather map and it, it looked awesome but i wasn't about to pay 500 dollars for it you know 
Yeah, so that bring that actually perfectly brings us into number five, which is component upgrades, and it's the yeah. easiest one to talk about because it's completely subjective. And and this does not knock anybody, right? Because I I to- totally understand people who want to yeah. bling out their game. I'm I'm all for it. I'm with you. I see it. The luxury playstyle tokens, for instance, for several of the place uh, or the LCGs look gorgeous. They're absolutely gorgeous. Or the burger tokens for um, Marvel Champions, they're really nice. Mm-hmm. But I'm a person that says, okay, if I want to bling out my game, I'd rather do it with something practical like a play mat or card sleeves. And that's just my personal take. And I don't mean to sound like I'm insulting anybody else who who would differ with me on that because I'm not. And I absolutely think that it's totally worth differing with me on that. Right. I just personally don't want to invest my money in that because I want to enhance my experience itself. Mm-hmm. But for some people that does. A lot of the time you see those kinds of things and you mention a couple different companies that make things for these games. A lot of time you'll see these aftermarket um, mm-hmm. in terms of component upgrades. They're very actually rarely sold by the original creator of, of the game. The one I can really think of two actually, Everdell and Scythe. Scythe is the one where I did go ahead and get the upgrades for them with the you know nicer looking resources but they sold them for a real reasonable price and i found them really good the one that i probably will never do is everdell they sell i don't know if you you can imagine the feeling of the different you know pieces and everything they sell like premium versions of these pieces and i just don't think it's too worth it it doesn't hit my my table enough it's not practical enough um scythe was worth it because of just how immense the game is i want it to look as best as possible and it's a legendary box but you know companies will do it for carcassonne it's just it's just not worth it to me uh the game is practical enough and you just have to completely make your own judgment when it comes to upgrades for things that are just aesthetic there's this avenue where it's like okay if i can buy this this upgrade tokens and my game's going to look great, but it's still the same old game. Mm-hmm. And so I get that feeling of newness for a little while, but it's going to wear off much quicker than if I got an expansion that I could play five, six, seven, eight times and explore these new areas of the game. I feel like that has greater value, in my opinion, in overall terms. But at the same time, for those people who want the shiny, I totally get it, and I don't. Oh, I do sometimes. <laughs> exactly. I mentioned L5R earlier. That's a good example. You know, for a while there, I had the play mat, the sleeves, the tokens, everything that matched. But I had them that way because I earned them at, at events, and to me, that felt better, knowing that I had earned these these tokens by making top cut and so on and so forth. But it felt better than going out and purchasing hey this this upgrade token kit even though over time i probably spent more to get that because i all the tournament entries to me that that felt personally right and i can only speak from personal experience here that that kind of an upgrade was much better and more pleasing at the table because every time i saw that i mm-hmm. remember those moments and i remember that time hey i remember this game and it was so close and i could have had this but i lost and i you know or something like that and it's so it it kind of drove me to continue to play the game and to continue to get those component upgrades because it was how I got them. And so I think that's an element too, right? Where there's a difference between purchasing a component upgrade and earning it, but not every game has that option, right? Not mm-hmm. every game has it where you can in- enter a tournament and get X, Y, or Z. So for those games where you can't, purchasing those upgrades might be well worth it. I uh, maybe you go to a, a convention and they have these exclusives at that convention that you can only get there, and it's yes, yeah, you know, oh well, it's limited time. You got FOMO kicking in, and maybe you probably don't miss it most of the time if you decide to pass. But it's kind of hard to do that when you know it's right there in front of you and it looks so good. FOMO is a real thing. I definitely wanted to kind of touch on it generally and just say if you're just getting into board games and you're trying to figure out what expansions are worth it and what they should mean to you i honestly just think if it brings 
you and whoever you are playing with joy and gives you some sort of way of getting more out of the game, whether it's visual or gameplay-wise or maybe even just a tiny little module out of one giant box. If that money is spent on something that actually gives you joy, then it's worth it. If you're just doing it because you have to have everything, it's probably a dangerous mindset to be in. I I 100% agree with that, 100%. You will never have everything. I'm looking at my shelf, and I've got plenty of games that have expansions to them, and I don't need them. I don't need every terraforming Mars little bit. It's already a big enough, complicated enough game, and I don't have enough people who really love it to put the time in. And I have also, unfortunately, expansions on my shelf that I just don't care to use. And thinking right now, I know I've brought it up a million times, but Wingspan is one of those. I do not like the Oceana expansion. I don't like the Nectar, but if it brings you joy, then go ahead with it. Right. And I I think you hit the nail on the head, really. It's a matter of personal, like, you know, I, I've been a little bit pessimistic in this uh, podcast for a little while about some aspects of expansions. And I don't want people to think that I'm making a statement that it's exclusive. Hey, this is how you got to do it. Cause it's not, I, I can only speak for me. Mm-hmm. So if, if you buy a, a token upgrade or whatever, and you think you got that, like, for instance, we have probably a dozen different monopolies in our collection. And I know board game hobbyists are going really? to up their nose and say, oh, no, Monopoly. no, not <laughs> Monopoly. But here's the thing. That right. was my wife's introduction to the board gaming world. So it's special mm-hmm. for her. So when we see one that fits into her interests, we get it and we never play it. But we get it because that's something usually it's relatively cheap and it's fun to have. And on that off chance, we can say, hey you know what, let's play this and see if it's different because we're introducing people that maybe aren't familiar with the more Eurocentric games or the tiling. And these are these are ways to ease people into this larger hobbyist world. And yeah. while it gets a lot of flack, that's something that we find value in. Right. Maybe it's for yeah. nostalgia reasons or something like that. But, but we find value in it. I have a lot of old games that, you know, made by Parker Brothers and Milton Bradley and all that that aren't good games, to be quite honest. They're really bad games. But I played them as a kid, They and they introduced me to what board games could be. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is worth it sometimes to buy those those various games. And I know that's we're talking about games specifically, expansions here, but as a whole, right, that motivation may differ from person to person, play group to play group. And so you might find value in something that I don't and vice versa. And we got to make sure we don't take our opinions and tell people the opinion is fact. So if you hear us say something and you disagree with that, you know, by all means, don't let me rob that. You know, don't let me rob it of you. Tell me you disagree with me on something. Tell me you think, you know, buying $150 worth of tokens for a game that you play once in your life is worth it. You do that. You go for it if that brings you joy. I just personally yeah. find that that's not where my brain functions. I'd much rather have a uh, an experience that is impacted by mechanics than I would an experience impacted by visuals. But if you're new to the hobby, maybe it might be wise to rather get in than get an expansion, buy a different game or yeah. buy something that changes the way you play it to ex- expand your horizon in your experience yeah absolutely a little personal story of mine when it comes down to it um when i was first really getting into the board game hobby i picked up a couple of different games one was munchkin and one was smash up have you heard of either one of those yeah munchkin yes i have munchkin i do not have smash up i hear a lot of people talking about it but i've never played it okay so what i did was i took those two games only and every single time there was an expansion for them where Munchkin is modules more of the same, you're just going to add it into the base deck. And that Smash Up is sort of the modular single factions that you can play as. Anyway, mm-hmm. I only focused on getting expansions for those two games, and that was it. 
if I were to have taken the little bit of allowance that I had, or not technically allowance, but you know, a free money gifts yeah. for yeah, yeah, right, gifts for Christmas or or birthdays or anything, and asked for maybe a different type of game, a game that could you know give me a different experience, I would have gotten into the hobby a lot faster and had more of an exponential growth towards different types of games, different experiences. Now, because of you know my obsession with Smash Up back in the day, I think I'm particularly prone to when I get uh, something that has maybe factions in it or specific characters, I just want every single type. I know that if I were to have get got into Dice Throne when it first came out, I would have everything for that game. It's a it's a problem I've got, but I, I feel like we're, I, we should be in a, a meeting for. Game expansion anonymous right now. <laughs> I'm totally on board with you there. <laughs> yeah. You just realize what not only you, but the people you're playing with enjoy. It's board games is an inherently less selfish hobby than something like video games or painting or exercise. It's inherently, unless you're playing only solitaire, a social experience. You have other people at your table, in your home. If those people are having fun with, you know, like you said, Monopoly. If if you've tried to show them a hundred different things and they're truly just obsessed with Monopoly, then take that into consideration. It's it's important to be a little less selfish when it comes to board games. And maybe what sits on your shelf isn't as fun as what hits your table. Right. And I think this was a hard lesson for me personally to learn because I'm one of those type of people that I want to take as much in as I possibly can as quickly as I can. And then mm-hmm. as I think about it and I dwell on it, I'll process it and I'll break it down into categories and subcategories and little bitty tiny pieces. And that's just the way my brain works. Yeah. But that overwhelms a lot of people. So what I've found is just because it's a game I like doesn't necessarily mean my group is going to like it. And you have to know your group, know who you're playing with. And so I've often found that I've created negative experiences for those that I'm introducing games to because I'm not thinking about what they might enjoy. I'm just thinking, I love this game and I want to share it. So right. that's something to consider as well, right? When you're talking about expansions, hey, this is might be great, but is this right for my group? Because like you said, it isn't inherently a social hobby, more so than most. And there are solo games, obviously. I do a lot of solo gaming. Uh, but at the same time, there is there is certainly an element there where you have to consider, is this a game that both of us can play or all four of us can play or whatever the situation may be? And and that's got to help to curtail your, your experience a little bit. For instance, you know, I think a lot of people can relate to this idea when you expand into, say, Euro-style games. For the longest time, my parents didn't, you know, they're they're uh, classic board game people, you know, Parker Brothers, Milton Bradley, let's play Scrabble, let's play Clue kind of thing. Well, we introduced them to Ticket to Ride, which is not necessarily a Euro game, but it is a European design game. Mm-hmm. And they absolutely fell in love with it. Well, what we realized, we just didn't tell them it was made in Europe. So <laughs> <until laughs> after the fact. So, and they fell in love with it. And so then I started playing with my nieces and nephews and, you know, and that became the thing that every time my wife and I would come over, we even bought extra copies to keep at my parents' house because we would go over there to spend time with, you know, like I said, other members of the family and nieces and nephews and stuff would always ask, Hey, can we play the train game? Can we play the train game? Sure. And that became a thing that our family bonded over because, we recognize, hey, this is so we bought a ton of different maps, even though, yeah, we're not introducing them to new experiences. They're still exploring this one. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to force them into something they're not ready for. And rather, I'm going to buy these different maps. And we at this point, I think, probably have certainly in the double digits of Ticket to Ride maps, all because, you know, they're not hobbyists. And, and I, we got to keep that in mind. They're just people who are enjoying a board game. They're still exploring that space. And so right. I think we as hobbyists tend to forget this. Uh, you know, a lot of people will talk, you know, Ticket to Ride, okay, that's a basic game. It's simple. 
and they'll talk down about Ticket to Ride to a degree because it's been so popular and for so long. And we forget that, yeah, for us it has. But for others, they don't play these games like we do. So we're really being that gateway, not so much the game, but we are the gateway for them, right? And so right. with when I think about expansions, that's a situation where I bought a bunch of expansions that are kind of more of the same in many ways, just different maps, right? Modulars and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But every single one of them sees play. Every single one of them. And there's even little songs that, you know, we'll, and chants and stuff we'll do when playing with different people within my family, you know, depending on what, what destination they're going to. We, you know, in the original American map, you, you've got the long bridge, the orange bridge that's got the swirly and it kind of looks like Naruto's headband. So that became the Naruto bridge. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. silly things like that, but it builds memories. And I think that's something we have to keep in mind. What are we doing this hobby for to begin with? But if not to have fun and, and bring joy and fulfillment in our life. And if we don't keep that in mind, and like you said, maybe get obsessive about, oh, I got to have it all. It kind of loses some intrinsic part of what made us enjoy the game to begin with. That's a perfect way to wrap it up. You're not really expanding on the game. You're expanding on the experiences. I've had a couple of good little conclusions here. Jasper last uh, or the first episode gave me sort of a good little wrap up towards the end too. It was it was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Before getting out of here, I don't have a sponsor, of course, for this podcast. But if you want to help out, you can go ahead and check out cardboardcrashcourse.com. Not only do I have merch over there, you can read my blogs and such. But we also have a Patreon. If you want to go ahead and just do a couple of dollars or join one of the tiers, then that absolutely helps out. I can go ahead and get better equipment to make this nicer for you to listen to. I do want to go ahead and thank my Crash Course professor, which is none other than Turtle Dude. Thank you. (laughs) I know that guy. (laughs) Crash Course professors get special benefits on top of everybody else like being able to be on podcast episodes and think personally and everything that they're not. And um, But I appreciate all of you just the same. Thank you so much for everybody who already is part of that. It's been great being on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Patrick. Have a great rest of your day, everybody. Bye-bye.